You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with us, as always, is Dr. Fleming. Well, good morning. Today, we are going to talk about the new age. And as I was telling Dr. Fleming before we started recording, I've always taken, I've always thought of the new age, however you want to look at it, as something not very serious. Whereas Dr. Fleming was want to tell me that it isn't a matter of it being uh, silly or not serious. It's actually quite dangerous. And I remember in a recent podcast, you, you brought up Scientology as an example of the silliness, but that there, there was something sinister in that silliness. <clears throat> so let's start with that, Dr. Fleming, that New Age isn't just something for the flower children that should be ridiculed, but it's something dangerous that should be watched out for. Yeah, it's um, the, there, there are two sides of it, obviously. Anything we do in America ends up being very silly and childish. And even, even if, we, if we had, a, no, no matter what good things we try to revive, then they become very foolish as soon as they turn into a movement. But, but you know, you can't look at the news or go to a movie or listen to popular music without running into uh, people who are claiming to be Wiccanists which, by the way, is a kind of movement that began, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago. It's a kind of PR development. They claim to be ancient witches, but they but they don't even know what witchcraft is. You can't <clears throat> turn anywhere without people talking about astrology. Uh, books on astrology are everywhere. Uh, fortune telling, tarot cards uh, come in and out of fashion, but they're, they're wildly popular now. Even such ridiculous... Uh, excesses of stupidity in uh, modern times, like aromatherapy, you know, you, to, to, to get in tune with your inner self or to get in tune with the, uh, with celestial forces, you have to smell certain things. By the way, this goes, this goes back to a, uh, a mystical, magical Neoplatonist of the, uh, of the 15th century, Marcelio Ficino practiced aromatherapy in conjunction with astrology. But on you get the um, the children who call themselves white racial nationalists and the so-called alt-right movement, and they to to be the because they're always like to make themselves a, a ridiculous parody of anything that's going on in the world. So they have some imaginary frog god they call Keck. Now it's all it's all supposed to be humorous, but the fact is that when you start um, playing with these things, you end up being like the little girls in Salem, Massachusetts, who had a Jamaican maid, and she started teaching them how to tell their future, how they would find out who their lover was, who they were going to marry. Before long, they started uh, trying to develop uh, love filters, love potions, and poisons uh, for people's animals they didn't like, and and of course, and part of all of this is that you end up uh, you end you can end up committing murder. Now <clears throat> those those little girls were burnt as witches, and in fact they were witches. One of the great lies of modern history is that the Salem witch trials were a travesty. It was it was quite wrong to to put these deluded creatures to death, 
But they were given every chance to recant, and they insisted that they had bound their souls to Satan. People do this. It's not it's not funny. And if they you don't have dead, you don't end up dead, you know, burned at the stake as a witch, you can end up uh, causing a great deal of harm to other people. And so really what we see when we look around at pop culture, just look, look, look at what's playing on the movies. It's, it's always about vampires or witchcraft or something uh, supernatural. And, this, and, the, and the witches and the vampires are usually portrayed as uh, not entirely evil. They're, they're, they're portrayed ever since Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, we've had a lot, a lot, of, a lot of the undead uh, are, uh, become romantic heroes. So where would you where do you think this comes from, Dr. Fleming? Because we like to consider ourselves very science based people. You know, we don't go in for any of that superstitious religious nonsense. Where where do you think this obsession with zombies and the undead and witches and I see that stupid coexist sticker uh, when I'm, I'm in the United States. I will say one thing for Europe, we don't have bumper stickers, nor do we have things like coexist anywhere because uh, there's too much history for that. But you know, on, on the on the before we answer you, on the bumper sticker, it's an amazing country where you can sum up your philosophy of life in a five word bumper sticker, <laughs> like like uh, abortion stills a beating heart. You know, this is this is a serious, <laughs> you know, killing babies is a serious business, and it should not be <laughs> reduced to a little slogan that you that you can stick on your car to annoy other people. Well, remember that that I helps like, people feel good, Doctor Fleming. Yes, remember, it does. they don't have to do anything; it just helps them feel good. Yeah, the only bumper sticker I like is the one that says uh, "Protected by Smith and Wesson." <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> that one you have to take seriously. Okay, you, you know, yeah, the, 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 our conception of ourselves living as modern people, we are all heirs of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, an age in which we shed the superstitious bigotry of the Middle Ages. And we moved into an age of rational philosophy, a skeptic, a religious skepticism, and uh, science. And that our world is ruled by uh, science and, uh, and, and reason. Of course, the truth is that it was during that very period, during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, where uh, w that, um, in fact, this, uh, this movement began. It was begun by people who were, yes, rejecting Christianity, but uh, not not in they but in favor of magic witchcraft and astrology where would you i'm i'm thinking as you say this Dr. Lillian, where would you classify the enshrining of the goddess of reason uh at notre dame cathedral is that fit somewhere into this yeah of course it's uh it's first of all it's uh, it was uh an attempt to create a pagan religion uh, reason, of course, pre or a uh, hundred years earlier, they might have it might have been the goddess nature, and a hundred years before that, it might have been uh, you know the goddess Venus or or Mercury, but the 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 whole project beginning certainly in the 15th century, both in Constantinople and in Italy, 
the project was to replace traditional Christianity with some reconstructed form of paganism that would give the practitioners access to powers beyond the natural. And so the quest, the quest for power, often combined with the quest for easy uh, sexual relations, the quest for power and money and fame, uh, which drove it, meant that these people were becoming sort of the, the popes of their own church. Well, well, I, I, I suppose that's the problem of uh, we have to use their terms, right? They're going to use the term renaissance. They're going to use the term enlightenment. Yeah. And and obviously it wasn't an enlightenment, and and it was it was somewhat of a renaissance. Yeah, well, the renaissance technically uh, was if you're a, if you're a scholar, and I first began thinking about things these things when I was about twenty one, when I was bullied into taking a course, a, a year long seminar on Renaissance Latin that I was by no means uh, ready. Uh, for, but they were having trouble filling it, so they stuck me, a first-year graduate student, with no interest in the Renaissance, or even Latin, for that matter, just stuck into it. Uh, the Renaissance was the, the, the rebirth of correct Latin uh, and an attempt to rediscover the, the, the glories of the ancient world, and, and uh, particularly correct Latinity, and then uh, manuscripts, and a revival of the knowledge of Greek. Uh, Greek had more or less disappeared from uh, Europe, except for a very few people, diplomats who went to Constantinople. There were a few Italians in Venice, maybe one or two in Rome, but they, 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 they were not sitting around reading Plato. They were engaged in, tra you know, they were buying fruit from Greek markets, more or less. So, uh, so the revival of classical antiquity is the real uh, was the real object of the so-called Renaissance and humanism, which is how it, this this movement is characterized. It's the humanist tradition of Petrarch, Boccaccio, Lorenzo Valla, Thomas More, Erasmus, and it was it was an educational movement. It did it was aimed at liberating uh, the the world of Italy and Europe from. The, the dark, barbarous age uh, that we call the Middle Ages, which I prefer to call the Christian age. But many of these people were themselves uh, decent Christians. Petrarch, certainly, uh, the older he got, was very pious. And Erasmus, uh, despite uh, he gets a pretty bad rap, but Erasmus seems to have taken Christianity pretty seriously. And one of the objects these people had, of course, was to restore the text of, um, of the New Testament and the Old Testament you know, by, by studying the manuscripts. Now, of course, this leads to the delusion that somehow you can get back to the days of the early church. Well, that we can go back to the days of the apostles. And the fact that we have no evidence for this, that we could build an actual church on it, just is, is of no moment, because then you had crazy people who, like the Anabaptists, who said, oh, no, we want to live the way the apostles lived, and then they just make it up from there. And then before long, they've got many wives, they're robbing people, they're committing murder, rape, and whatever else. So, um, but that's not, that's not Renaissance humanism. But there's another tradition that emerges at the, virtually the same time. And it also goes back to the ancients, but it's not so much going back to trying to read, read Virgil correctly and write like Cicero and study Roman history, but rather it's uh, going back to recover uh, what they called uh, Plato, and they call themselves Platonists or Platonici, 
But in fact, they were relatively little interested in Plato. They were much more interested in uh, later Platonists like Plotinus. But even Plotinus was pretty flimsy for them compared to writers like Iamblichus, Proclus, Hermes Trismegistus. And that is, these are writers who essentially were spiritualist writers who teach, taught a kind of mysticism that's combined with magic. You, it's incantational. You have, you have things and formulas you're supposed to use so that you can first have powers over this natural world. And by the way, this led to the creation of science. That is to trying to discover which demons to propitiate in this world and what metals they liked and what smells they liked. This, this, this is the direct ancestor of, of modern research-based science. Uh, science is, as I like to say, the ugly stepchild of magic. The, uh, on the other hand, of course, they, um, you can then start ascending through the planetary spheres and ultimately to the stars and beyond the stars. And beyond the stars lie, of course, the great, the greatest demons, the greatest daimonia, these, these, these powers that are emanations of the divine and can help us reach the divine. But of course, we can also learn to control them and use them for our own uh, purposes. So what they, what they evolved was what they called the Prisca Theologia, the ancient theology, which they said lay behind Plato and Moses. That is, Plato and Moses drew their inspiration, uh, as well as, of course, later Christians, from the same source. And this source were the ancient Egyptians and ancient Babylonians. The ancient Egyptians, of course, were represented by the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, in fact, these are magical uh, writings in Greek that can come about roughly from the time of uh, our Lord to about uh, maybe two or three hundred A.D. So they're in fact uh, very late, and they're, they, the reason they sound like Plato is because they borrow from Plato, and the reason they have Jewish elements is that they're borrowing from the Old Testament. There are also some things which were uh, called the Chaldean oracles that are attributed to Zoroaster, but again, very very late stuff. So these people believe in math and astronomy, but for them, astronomy is, of course, the same as astrology. And, uh, and, but they also believe in science as much as for magic. So Giordano Bruno, who was quite correctly burned at the stake in Rome at the Campo dei Fiori, I'd never go to Rome without visiting this wonderful historic site. It's inspiring to see uh, that Rome once actually believed, it, believed in something so strongly that they burned this heretic witch uh, in 1600, he was an advocate of the heliocentric theory of Copernicus, you know, that the Earth and the planets go around the sun, as they, by the way, certainly do. But <clears throat> it wasn't so much because C C Copernicus had done the math correctly, which, which very much, by the way, impressed Bruno. He knew a lot of math. But because he believed, as a magician, he believed that the sun dominated our world and that human nature was principally solaria. That is, we, we were in touch with these magical, mystical influences coming down from the sun. And so the, the Copernican theory appealed very strongly to magicians because they, because they worshipped the sun. And there we have one of the greatest pieces of, uh, most important pieces of pagan literature, of course, is uh, Proclus uh, wrote a hymn to the sun about, you know, after the fall of Rome, I mean, at the, at the beginning of the Middle Ages. Of the great founders, in fact, of, of rational uh, scientific inquiry, Copernicus, Kepler, Descartes, Francis Bacon, and especially Isaac Newton, 
all of them, all of them uh, are known to have had some degree of faith in astrology, alchemy, and magic. In the case of Newton, who is certainly the greatest scientist produced by this age and one of the greatest scientists of all times, you know, most of Newton's writings are either crazed numerological speculation on the, on the Bible, you know, counting numbers and magic numbers and, or alchemy. So Newton, who discovers these great laws of gravity and of, of the motion in the universe, but principally, he was most interested in alchemy and numerology. So it's magic and, and, and astrology and crazy stuff. As just a sidebar on Bruno, Dr. Fleming, I, I, re, I remember the statue of him in Campo de Fiore. Yes, yes. And I think some of our listeners might like to know why young people uh, gravitate towards that statue so much. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, the Campo de Fiore is a very lively place in the evening. It's a place where they they're, they sit around drinking, smoking dope, and 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 making dates. But is there is there some other reason? No, I think it's tied in with with there's this yeah. romance behind someone like Bruno, yeah, right? Yeah. Because they're told lies about who this guy is. Remember, anyone who's burned at the stake is because the Catholic Church is is wicked and and hated knowledge, right? That's always oh, absolutely, the story. So, and. You know, Bruno, in fact, the, the inscription on it is that here was born as a martyr to truth and free speech. You know, blah, blah. No, the man was a black magician. <laughs> he went around Europe trying to create a movement based combining uh, pl Platonism with hermetic stuff with practical black magic. In other words, the kind of yeah, he was he was a very, uh, very highbrow sort of guy. But he on the on the one hand, but on the other hand. He was talking about practical operational magic, such as the magic of Cornelius Agrippa and Paracelsus, you know, invocations of demonic spirits in order to help you in this world. And when you die, of course, help you get to where you want to go. So it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of magic formulas. Bruno, Bruno came to England and on uh, uh, this summer at our summer school, I'm going to talk a little bit about this because he, he was uh, he was shown around by Sir Philip Sidney's mother and he hobnobbed with all of the Elizabethan aristocracy, all the you know, all these wonderful people that were that one admires so much in Elizabethan England. They, they all fell for him, including, of course, he met with uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth's personal astrologer, John Dee. Who was uh, who had a partner who was a necromancer? Now necromancer sounds romantic, but what necromancy means? You dig up a dead body and get a demon to enter into it and tell tell you secrets. This mm. is not this is not very amusing stuff. And uh, so it was a whole circle in Elizabethan England of people who were very they were prepared already to uh, to uh, welcome. Giordano Bruno, he did the same thing in in uh, in uh, France. He'd already been to France and won won the support of King Henry the Third. And but he made the mistake of of going back to England, uh, going back to Italy after he recanted, and the Jesuits got a hold of him and started squeezing him. And and eventually they he he, he, he the man would not shut up. You couldn't get him to quit babbling about uh, his silly, uh, silly stuff. And eventually he got exactly what he uh, had asked for. And so, yeah, so that you're right. He is. And book after book after book in the 19th century was written to celebrate this martyr. It was be, they burned him because he believed that the earth went around the sun. No, they burned him because he was a black magician. 
Mm. And uh, the the book, the, the fundamental book on this, I, I have many problems with it. Is Fr- Francis Yates's book on uh, Giordano Bruno and the uh, and Hermetic Magic, uh, written about I don't know thirty forty years ago. She was a great scholar on this at the University of Chicago. She, she, she's English. Her trouble is uh, she thinks that when people say they're Christian that they are. So she doesn't understand the Renaissance fundamentally. That is where people uh, people may be magicians, but they have to run around and pose as uh, as pious Christians. Otherwise, you know, uh, Bruno shows what happens if you uh, if you were incautious. I before we I, there's obviously more I want to talk about, Doctor Fleming, but I want to bookend on on the idea of Renaissance because I think obviously you you've shown us there's there's two wings of the Renaissance. Do you take issue with the phrase Renaissance man? Because it's it's quite a bon mot if people want to 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 label yeah. somebody Renaissance man. Well, of course, now if you can walk and chew gum at the same time, Renaissance <laughs> man. I mean, I've heard like, uh, oh, Milton Berle was a real Renaissance man because he did radio and television, and you hear these people. The uh, there were um, probably. The, the idea of a Renaissance man is somebody impo- so impossibly learned in a, in a vari- and skilled in a variety of things. So, for example, uh, Leon Battista Alberti. Alberti is famous for the Alberti bass line, which is for, used in a continuo in music. But he was also an artist, art critic, philosopher. And you know, people like Alberti, who had multiple skills, probably the ultimate Renaissance man was Pico della Mirandola. He was the Count, the Conte, Conte della Mirandola. And in his early 20s, he had, he had beautiful Latin. He wrote, he wrote beautiful uh, stuff. He knew a fair amount of Greek, and he studied Hebrew, not because he wanted to read the Old Testament, but he wanted to read the Kabbalah, the, this, the secret magical literature uh, tradition of, of, of the Jews, and study also Arabic uh, magic. And he went, he wrote love poetry also, and he went to Rome to defend 900 theses, 13 of which were condemned, and eventually he tried to defend himself, and then Pope was it Innocent VIII uh, said, fine, I'm condemning all of it. You, you're incorrigible. <laughs> And, and he was, he was incorrigible. Uh, Pico, remember, is, is you, Pico Sprezzatura, is that, is that him? Pico Sprezzatura? No, no, Pico, de, was, he the, was he the one who popularized the idea of Sprezzatura? I don't know, I'd never heard that. Okay. He, um, he, was, he was a magician, he believed in going farther than any magician had done up until that time. He was also, however, an enthusiastic, brilliant young man, very handsome, very charming, very, people loved him, and something that is worth uh, a good deal of study is to study uh, what happens in Florence at this time, because you have the great Lorenzo de' Medici, the, woman, the, the degenerate womanizer who spent his whole fortune on art and ruined Florence. Basically, just, he's called the, the Magnificent. He's a man who ruined the city that he'd inherited from, uh, from his grandfather, Cosimo the Old. So uh, he ruins it, but in the meantime, we get so we get things like Botticelli's paintings. We get Pico. We get the the poetry of Poliziano, who was uh, uh, Lorenzo's court poet. All these people knew each other, hung out with each other, and oddly enough, this is the time when Savonarola comes to Florence and starts condemning them. And it's a strange world because Pico 
Pico uh, made friends with Savonarola, and eventually, as Guicciardini, the Florentine historian of the next generation, says he lived like a monk the last years of his life. He burned his indecent uh, poetry and much of his much of his magical writings, and he tried to subject himself to the rigors of, of austere, an austere form of Christianity. Now, Savonarola himself was a bit of a nut job, but that's what happens. In it, when a society turns to the dark side, even the even the noblest reformers, which Savonarola certainly was, as well as being an egomaniac, even the reformers, the best people, you know, become a little bit nuts. But there's evidence that Poliziano, the most the most corrupt fleshly poet, perhaps in Western tradition, he also seems to have been influenced. And by the way, both Pico and his friend Politian, Poliziano, they're both poisoned within a year. They've been dug up, and there's a strong, strong amount of uh, arsenic. Now these in, in their in their hair in their in the remains. Now these, and, and by the way, Botticelli is said to have burned some of his more indecent paintings, and he only painted the Blessed Virgin in the last years of his life. Now it's a it's a it's a magnificent period because we see the world turning basically to Satan. Not, not to, not to, not to pull too many punches, but at the same time, these brilliant people, these brilliant people pulled away. It's sort of like what uh, in the Screw Tape Letters, one of the 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 senior tempter says, "I'm hearing a lot of complaints from you young devils that we're not getting the quality of souls that we used to eat." Well, let me tell you, this business is not about quality; it's about quantity. And the trouble with those big sinners, you know, the Don Juan types, the Casanovas, the these people are, are like Franz Liszt. These people have great souls and great minds, and they can, in, in the end, they can turn back to the enemy. That is, they can become Christian. You know, List List was a monk. He lived in a monastery the last twenty years of his life, mm. and it was a very lived a very pious life. And so um, it's important not to demonize people who uh, who are led astray and then and stop short at the abyss. Picos and Thomas More, I would put in the same group. He loved all this Neoplatonic, Neo-Pagan stuff, quotes it at length, himself translated into English the life of Pico written by Pico's nephew. And and cites approvingly all these anti-Christian magicians from uh, late antiquity. So Moore himself, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think Henry's shenanigans uh, brought Moore back firmly with, with within the church. But it it was a it was a standing temptation of of this period and of every period since. These are the people. Remember, our civilization was created by these people. When when we think about this this combination of, of science and magic, I think at the time when you have the goddess of reason being enthroned in Paris, it's it's overtly a replacement religion. Yes. But can we say that it's a replacement religion now, Doctor Fumi? I just feel people have lost any sense of religion. So, I, I when we talk about Scientology, global warming, Gaia, Aleister Crowley, are are these are these really substitute religions? Do they have the same sort of power of religion, or are they are they poor substitutes? How would you classify them? Well, they're very unsatisfactory uh, substitutes, and um, and, uh, and a lot of some very bizarre little Christian sects, you know, like Christian Science. Those those are I would put in this category also. People have to 
live according to rules and rituals. And they have to live with a sense that there's something more to their life than just eating and sleeping, marrying and giving in marriage. And so religion, I'm not talking now about Christian faith, I'm talking about which is which is based on truth. Every society has to have some binding set of rituals that, that, that can keep people going. And I don't mean just to keep them from being criminal, but to give them a sense that that that, that life has meaning. So when you take away a, a, a true religion or even a religion that has a good deal of truth in it, Judaism has an enormous amount of truth in it. So does so do Buddhism. So does Taoism. So does Confucianism. These all are systems of thought and ritual that that can be paralleled uh, with 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 Christianity. And there, there are good things that allow people to lead better, more fruitful lives. Most of the substitute cults, like like the like the uh, white nationalist great god Keck, most of them are pretty ludicrous when you start looking at them, and they don't provide uh, the comfort or the structure uh, to life. Now, the more structured they get, the more sinister they get. So Scientology. Is very is very structured and disciplined, and you don't cross these people because they can. They have various ways of punishing you, both psychologically and through the press. So if you're dumb, if you're John Travolta or or uh, Tom Cruise, the you may have all the money in the world and a big reputation, but within the Scientology cult, you know you you you, you can be harmed uh, uh, very badly. So yeah, they're they're none of them is adequate. But when when you destroy religion, you know, there's a famous thing that Chesterton never said, which is when man gives up believing in God, he'll believe in anything. But it, that does accurately sum up uh, Chesterton's insight, which is that mod- all these modern developments, I don't care whether it's the cult of, cult of the, the heroic genius in music or the rock star cult or the, 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 uh, the cult of, of philosophy or the political or military hero, the cult, the race cult. All of these things are, are, are a pathetic, tawdry substitute for the real thing. The trouble is, you can, like those little girls in uh, in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, you can get attracted into it. As as Alistair Crowley, uh, the D, he started out just having a fairly naive interest in mathematically based science. You, you know, he had an MA in uh, in uh, mathematics from Cambridge, and but you end up self consciously evil. I mean, it was Crowley who called himself the wickedest man in the world. And then sued a newspaper for quoting him on that. Uh, but we have, after a look, look, look around us. If I were to say, what is the greatest god today in America? It's Gaia. It's the Earth, the planet. Notice how they, they like to call it the planet. We need to save the planet from human beings. Human beings, by consuming and spending and driving cars and and watching, because they never they never bring up the fact of how much incredible energy is used by people uh, on computers because all these people are they spend all day uh, tweeting on, on their phones and computers the, the probably probably the biggest polluter right now is is the is the is the whole information technology you, tremendous amounts of energy uh, but so but we have to demonize any human activity 
and limit any human activity that might damage the great god of the planet or the great goddess of the planet, which is why the whole global warming myth, which is uh, which is uh, so com- completely and unutterably silly, and yet has captivated what do you think fifty percent of the people in in Europe and the United States? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean it's up here with the Holocaust denial, at least in Europe. But I yeah. suppose, Doctor, I mean that's why I've never been really comfortable with the with the expression Mother Nature, because yeah. if you use the term Mother Nature, you get to Gaia, right? Yeah, very quickly. That's a very interesting point, you know, because. Nature, the word nature is a funny word because we use nature in a way that is inconsistent with its use historically. Nature for the Greeks was fusis, a principle of growth and development. And then the Romans used a, a word relating to birth, to give birth to, to translate it, natura. And so nature is the ultimate principles of the way things are. It doesn't, it's not trees and flowers and birds. You know, you can't, you, no Roman or Greek would go out or nobody in the Middle Ages would go out and, uh, let's, let's commune with nature. Another, another, by the way, very, what do you, commune with? <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? So, uh, commune, but you, you don't look at nature, you don't communicate with nature, you enjoy nature. It's like, like Lucretius, de, de rera natura, on the nature of things. It's the ultimate principles that explain the way things are, and it is also the way, the way, th- the way things are. So, somehow it, it is evolved now during the Romantic era to being, oh, you know, it's, it's Bambi nibbling on a flower, and, uh, you know, that, that's nature. But nature is also this benevolent, uh, maternal force that you know give give it's it's sort of Ceres or Demeter the goddess who who gives us growing things. So yeah, the, the whole the whole concept of nature and nature worship, which I think starts with the magicians, and uh, Dr. Brownlow who is coming to our summer school, he and I are, are discussing the u- the odd use of nature, for example, in uh, in King Lear. And uh, and elsewhere, the, the this this begin the, we see the emergence of of the great god nature, and so and then of course replaced by the great god reason. I think when you're thinking about today, so so because some people are going to say, "All right, Doctor Fleming, that's fine." You know, we we're subscribers to the Fleming Foundation. We don't buy into Gaia. We don't buy into global warming. You know, where is this more insidious? And I would identify. Uh, a more insidious issue with someone, let's say, like Elon Musk. And he's someone who I, as one of these younger folk, I'm not technically a young person anymore, but a younger person, uh, we watch these uh, rockets. He now launches these rockets, and then he returns the rockets from space. So he's reusing these rockets. And if you follow the live stream on Facebook, you see all these people making comments, and they're religious comments. There are people talking about, you know, our race is going to be saved and how great this is. And I was thinking to myself, if he were uh, a little less focused on running businesses, you might think him as a forerunner of the Antichrist. This idea of worshiping something, you know, great. Uh, It is certainly a great technical marvel and it is somewhat inspiring to watch. But the idea for Musk is moving to Mars, Right, that this this yes. is our goal. We have to get off the planet because this can't be enough. And I see this as the ultimate refutation of creation, of our special place in in the cosmos, of of what God's plan is for us. Well, 
clearly we have to make our own path and we have to get to Mars, this uninhabitable planet, right? That is, that is very far away because we have to remake society and remake our laws and everyone is excited at least in the younger generation, I don't know if you've ever talked to Garrett about something like this, but they're very excited about this Mars project. And I see this as a successor of Gaia, Aleister Crowley, Scientology. If, Garrett would want to know. Garrett would want to know if there were porcini on Mars. That right, would be exactly. his first question. As long as there is, as long as there's good food to be had, he might be there. But when I look at this, I see that as the insidious way in. Right. So if if Scientology oh, has lost its luster people will take up the cult of Elon Musk and let's, uh, of let's SpaceX. Let's unpack this a little bit, Stephen, as they, as they like to say in philosophy class. There's a lot that you, you, you brought up. One thing you brought up is uh, something that C.S. Lewis used to comment on in his, in, his, uh, in his space trilogy, that, you know, we have this idea that we can, we can ruin this planet, you know, through our swinish consumerism, so we ruin everything. Maybe we have a nuclear war, then, as in, uh, as in, um, then, but we get to go and bring the evil that we've created here under the influence of the Lord of this world, and that we get, that we, we get to then take it out and pollute other planets, and which will go in the same direction, but will like, like, uh, an Uncle Tom's sav- uh, cabin, you know, Eliza hopping from ice flow to ice flow, we're gonna stay one step ahead of the, of the, uh, of the solar system sheriff who is who is always going to punish us for ruining a planet so so we have that we have that aspect of it but we also have remember these planets mars and venus are not just inert rocks out there they are gods they are mm. planetary they are de- they are planetary demons who rule them and again lewis was very well aware of that and you know he has these uh, that this meeting in what in uh, in the uh, in Paralandra where the 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 various planetary planetary rulers meet together on Paralandra and uh, and ransom the, uh, the 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 philologist is in their presence and that's a very very by the way hermetic passage uh, because lewis remember was also a kind of platonist and uh, had had a had a week. I'm not saying there was anything wrong with him, but he had, he, he he liked the stuff maybe just slightly too well. But okay, so we we have these these planetary demons that we want to commune with. But and because the these are all uh, these are they're supernatural beings. Now, uh, along with Elon Musk, we have the incredible uh, Stephen Hawking, who I, I I've always I've tried to ask scientists what exactly what has he done that's important. I asked one scientist who said, well, what he did seemed to contradict Einstein, and he's wrong. But I, ha- I have no idea. I'm not interested. Hawking is now running around saying we have only 100 years before uh, we have to leave the planet. So between Hawking, maybe Hawking and Musk ought to, uh, ought to go into uh, partnership on this. Mm. But so wh- where, where, where does Hawking get this idea? Is it a, is it a computer model? No, it's just it's what he wants to believe. It's it's uh, well, he won't be here anyway. No, but remember, one of the, the most successful uh, Kabbalistic hermetic movements of the past several hundred years, uh, more successful than some oh, as successful as say that more successful than the Rosicrucians, maybe not quite as uh, widespread as Freemasonry. And of course, Freemasonry is, in fact, is this hermetic magical movement that uh, the average people who join just think that they get to go and 
drink and escape their wives and go to conventions or build hospitals or whatever else they do. But when you get to the higher levels of Freemasonry, there's some some very strange revelations about religion, about Christianity being evil, and the whole social order of the uni- of the of the world being evil, and that you've got to work to revolutionize it. But the uh, uh, in more recent years, there was a movement called Theosophy at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. And this stuff is really crazy because it because there were people with degrees in science and math who were involved. But on the other hand, they try to bring in all this uh, uh, Hindu uh, philosophy and religion, and they put it all together with the hermetic stuff. And around 1910. Madame Blavatsky and her followers and, and, and collaborators said that in a few hundred years, we'll all move to Mercury. So this this notion, this is a theos, this this notion that we have to <laughs> abandon Earth is is apart from everything, apart from it being, uh, you know, part of the environmental movement, it partly just, oh, well, we got to do something after all. But it's also p- partly theosophical. And of course, why did why did they want to go to Mercury? Well, that's you know, surely even in 1900, <laughs> they knew how hot it was. Well, because Mercury is the Roman name for Hermes and Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes, the thrice great Thoth, the god of the Egyptians, is the god uh, is the god of magic. I mean, it's it's pretty weird. But when you look at the, you look at Elon Musk, you look at it, you look at his face, you look at the way he talks, you're dealing with a magus. Not not a businessman. Mm. When I I think that this is the same issue. So going back to science, when I have yet to find somebody who's a professed you know atheist believer in science, science will save us. And I say, can you explain to me that why water gets less dense when it freezes and floats? Because everything else in the material world, normally when it gets denser, it's heavier and it sinks, right? Except yeah. our entire way of life. They're like, well, you know, that's a special property of water. I said, can you explain that to me, please? It's the same. They have this uh, giant debate going on between quantum physics and general relativity. They, they can't live together. And one of those no. is right. Said, well, because you can't admit that there are things that science cannot explain. And that is the fundamental uh, breakage of a conversation between, let's say, someone uh, who's, a, let's say, a believer in science and someone of myself who, who believes in, in God, that I accept that science can teach us things and, and I can learn things about creation, but I also know that there are places where I can't follow. There's no way for me to bridge that. A, sci- a, a believer in the religion of science tells me, well, we just haven't figured it out yet, but we will. Yeah, you know, uh, science uh, can figure out everything except three small things, and 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 this is this is a, a a little trope I use in lectures. The first thing science can't figure out is why is there something rather than nothing? Why why does anything exist? They they don't they don't, they don't know. I mean, they, even the Big Bang theory presupposes something before the Big Bang. Why is there anything instead of nothing? Mm. Second of all, why is there life instead of non-life and you know, they come up with all these theories you know uh, I, I i told i said this to a friend of mine who's a very fine scientist a darwinist and he said uh well you know given infinite time and infinite possible circumstances and i said you know perfectly well now you're lying because you because you have a you boys have a framework you have a you have a and within that framework within that chrono- chronological framework you cannot you cannot 
create. You had, nobody has, has come close to establishing a scenario under which life would have come into existence on Earth, as it's portrayed, say, in science books, movie films, you know, there's the chemical soup, it's all bubbling and lightning hits it and little one-celled animals or viruses start start emerging. There is no, if this were true, you should be able to replicate it and no one's come close to replicating. Thirdly, why do we have, why do human beings have consciousness, a knowledge of good and evil and a knowledge of ourselves? These are the three things that science can't figure out. And you would think that in their hum- uh, uh, if they had any humility whatsoever, they, they would admit this and say, well, the three most important things in, in, the, in the universe are beyond our understanding and always will be. And this is why, for example, some of the greatest neurophysiologists who study how the brain works – Actually, you know, people like Sir John Eccles and, and uh, Wilder Penfield, they said that after all their work, all they knew is that there was consciousness, but it could not be explained as a brain event. OK, now now you tell that to a high school science teacher and you say, what kind of mumbo jumbo? What kind of witch doctor told you that? And the answer is, well, Nobel Prize winning <laughs> neurophysiologist told me that's who. So we have the you know, we so science at that level. And by the way, I, I've spent a lot of time studying uh, biology and sociobiology. A lot of time trying to trying to learn what it can teach me. But uh, but they there are things it can't teach you and can't penetrate to. And, but the insistence that it does teach you that insist that conviction that they have that power that is magic. That is not the rational pursuit of knowledge. That is the that is they 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 use these things like magical incantations to gain power over over the budget of the United States. I mean, I suppose there are greater things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in philosophy. I think, uh, Dr. Fleming. Yes. I think the other thing is they it, these people in a way ruin the uh, wonder at creation that those of us who are believers have. So let's say they, they recently rebooted uh, Cosmos uh, a few years ago. And I remember a friend sent me a link. I said, okay, I'll watch the first episode. I couldn't make it through 15 minutes because they're busy attacking everything I believe in. They can't yeah. just have a discussion about the sun or water or minerals or earth. They have to attack everything. And I'm not as familiar with the Carl Sagan one. I, I think I watched half an episode here and there. But the new one was just entirely focused on attacking. I, I couldn't make it through 15 minutes. What What did you observe about the, the, the Carl Sagan one? I, I'm not as familiar with that. Yeah. The uh, First of all, the, 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 the view of the universe and its history and the evolution of life and all, and, and all that, that you get in... In in, uh, in popular science accounts, it's identical to what you got in the middle of the 18th century. I've, I've traced this back. In other words, what we're dealing with is an explanatory myth. Not we're not dealing with scientific research. Would they have an explanatory myth like like you know like the way the Greeks have an explanatory myth? You know, the reason we have evil in the world is there was this box that Pandora brings, and man opened it and look and and the, and the box, all these evil things flew. No, Pandora, excuse me, Pandora opens the box because she's a woman with curiosity, and that's why we're plagued with misery. That, that's that's a myth. That's an ideological myth to explain the way things are. So most of what when science tries to talk about these big issues. 
They talk about it, 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 it becomes myth-making, and a lot less probable than the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, which is, which is profound. Even if it weren't true, the question is, it is a profound understanding of human nature. It's, it is a supernaturally wise and brilliant account. Now, these people... Uh, Sagan, Sagan, of course, was a complete fraud. I, I tried, people told me he's a great scientist. I tried, again, I tried to find out what he had done and it turned out nothing. Now, but he did, he did have these convictions. Now, one of, he was, he was deeply anti-Christian, not just because he's Jewish, but because he was a, you know, he just, he was an anti-Christian bigot. I did find once, uh, I was checking things up and I wondered why he went after this, the story of Hypatia. Now, Hypatia was, of course, a, a Platonist philosopher at Alexandria, a woman, and she was torn to death, according to legend, by a Christian mob. And he tells the story in, in the, in the book version of, of Cosmos and, um, Word for word, it's ripped off from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, what kind, what kind of scientist, what kind of any serious intellectual of any kind actually copies out an encyclopedia article? So what did, what did Sagan want? Sagan's dream, he was an astronomer. Sagan's dream was to get in touch with extraterrestrial intelligence. There, a huge amount, billions and billions of dollars has, has been spent on, you know, on, on, on this, various transmitters, telescopes aimed at the sky, sending out messages, hoping that 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 some some ETI, some extra uh, terrestrial intelligence, is going to get in touch with us. Now, on Cosmos and elsewhere, Sagan, of course, all there's no such thing as God. Religion is ridiculous. Well, what, what do you have? These, what, what's this whole ETI project for? Well. Somewhere out there, there are beings that we should contact because they are infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and immortal. They're also infinitely benevolent because that's why they haven't reached out to us because we live on such a primitive level that, you know, it's it's like they're acting on these Star Trek Prime Directive. They can't intervene, intervene in a local culture. Probably Sagan thought Star Trek was historical reality. But... The point is, what are, what are, what, there's no God, but there are beings who are infinitely wise, immortal, infinitely powerful, and infinitely benevolent. What is that? I mean, if that's not God, what is God? Well, that's the thing, Dr. Fleming. Those messages to E.T. are the best that these people can, can uh, substitute for prayer. Yes. Right? Because they need this. When we see these headlines, life on Mars may be close they're desperate because they need life on Mars to vindicate their entire removal of God from their lives. Yeah, well, first, because it'll show, well, you, see, they really think that if they found life on another planet, no matter how simple, I mean, lower than algae, that that would refute Christianity. Everything. Right. And that wouldn't refute a darn thing. We, all we know is the history of the Earth. We don't know anything beyond that. And by the way, again, C.S. Lewis made the point, even if there's, there may be life in other solar systems, and maybe even those intelligent life with consciousness, and that those people, maybe, maybe, human, maybe human-like creatures that never fell. Maybe, maybe they, they had a different history. The point is, we don't know anything about them. We're, not, we're, we're probably not supposed to. Uh, but all we know is what we know. Now, so we spend how much money, Trill, how many trillions of dollars exploring space? And all we, and it's not, it's not the kooks that are talking like this. It's NASA. These guys at NASA, we're on the verge of finding life on Mars or on, or there's this, there's this, um, 
you know, a little planet going around some sun, you know, a zillion miles away. And circumstances there are right because they think this will then, yes, vindicate their entire system. It'll destroy Christianity and prove they're right. And so when you raised it earlier, how, how, how seriously should we take some of this stuff? Well, how seriously should we take the amount of tax dollars that are spent on sending out probes into outer space, wasting our money to try to find they're, – they're happy if they can even find crystallized water somewhere or evidence that there was ever water on a planet, much less, much less uh, finding, you know, finding a virus. And But it is, it is something – this is one of those things that, that they hold by faith and not by reason. We've covered a lot today, Dr. Fleming. Is there anything else that you'd like to to add before we close up our episode? Not really. I would say that um, this is a huge subject and a subject which perhaps I think we should uh, take apart part by part as the as the years go by, uh, if our if our shows that our project has uh, has any success, because it it is it is something that has been interwoven. Like like a like a like a terrible weed interwoven with Christian culture since like the fourth century A.D., and that we are playing through a drama over and over and over, which uh, which includes some things that seem superficially fairly naive and silly, but that way down deep, what what we're dealing with is the attempt to reach creatures that we know are allied with the enemy of the human race. And when we have a whole culture, a civilization that celebrates people like Francis Bacon, uh, who is an occultist, that celebrates them as the greatest, wisest, most rational people in the, in the history of the human race, then we, we ha- we ha- we ha- our problems don't date back to the, to the 1960s. Our problems are not on the surface, our problems go very, very deep to a fundamental rebellion against all, all the things that are created. That's my final word. I think that's a good, great place for us to end. Thanks for your time as always, Dr. Fleming. Okay. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.